0: This is One Hate Minute.
1: Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll.
0: What's your name? Wayne bro.
1: look like gang bangers, working the local 7-Eleven
0: Robbery, homicides, take it. Give me all you got! This and- Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today, well, it's a person that I've really wanted to be on the show for far longer um, than than most uh, She's been a very busy person but I feel like the person that is joining me today on one heat minute in this moment that is such a pinnacle moment for the entire film in a film moment that's discussing the dreams and aspirations of these two iconic characters and these great actors in this Kate Mandalini's coffee scene is an exceptionally talented and poetic writer who I've been watching musing uh, very recently over a single film in many 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 articles and it's been sort of like I've been watching her like a kindred spirit going this is a person who gets obsessed with movies in a very similar way that I get obsessed with movies where sort of that movie can become like a place where you can meditate on in many, many different forms. That person is Joanna Dimatia. She is a writer and a film critic, and uh, she's she's even committed thousands of words in a thesis uh, to this very film that we're talking about. And that film that she was obsessed about, not Heat, but the film she was obsessed about was Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name. Joanna, welcome, welcome, welcome to One Hate Minute. It is a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you, Blake, for that very um, warm welcome and uh, for pointing out to everybody listening that I am an obsessive
0: person. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I didn't... I didn't... I did, I did, it's in the best possible light. I'm like, oh, this is... A, she, here she goes again is my... Ba- basically my... Uh, yeah. is basically my, my What I'm looking forward to when I follow um, Joanna on Twitter. I'm just like, oh, here yeah. we go. This is something else I'm going to like reading. Hit like. Save that for later. And then as I'm usually on a commute or a A break. I'm like, this is this is what I'm going to dive into and listen to. But as I said, look, 93rd minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus, 92 minutes exactly, an hour and 32 minutes. If you are looking at it on your original theatrical cut Blu-ray of Heat, and uh, we're here. Where you you you've written about this film before too?
1: I have. Yeah. Well, it was a long, long time ago um, when I did my PhD. Um, and I, I, I probably wasn't thousands and thousands of words. I think I might have exaggerated actually. It's probably like a thousand words, um, and it was part of a chapter that was looking at um, mythologies of uh, white male um, heroism kind of falling down and falling apart in 1990 America, and it was very much in the context of the Clinton era and... Um, connected to sort of ideas about masculinity in his presidency. So he was one of the, you know, hateful, you know, slam-bam in the middle of that decade, and um, it proved to be a really interesting film to talk about.
0: Oh, most definitely, most definitely. And uh, that, that decade and, and decades pass, you know, that strange sort of new Hollywood kick kickoff era that sort of culminates... Arguably, some people say it culminates in Jaws and Star Wars because they just bring bring forth the blockbuster, but it's almost like, um, yeah, all the way up to sort of the end of First Blood, the end of the first Rambo movie um, before America turns into Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, uh, muscle-bound, impervious to everything, uh, you know, Vietnam revenge with Reagan sort of uh, politics that then comes back with a vengeance when, uh, when the liberal uh, Americans come back into power a couple of years later.
1: Yeah, yeah. My thesis was very much, uh, a, you know, in contrast to that um, hard-bodied masculinity of the '80s, and was looking at how um, the male body um, was basically turning soft and and was kind of under pressure from a variety of sources. Anyway, I don't want to bore our listeners with details of my phd from many years ago but what was so interesting about i actually pulled it out to have a look at it in preparation for this to remind myself of what i used to think and it's just how little has changed it's gone you know we're back i think there's like these cycles of kind of uh re and feminizing and like it's just this kind of wheel that never stops spinning
0: And it's so funny that you say that because my my dear friend Maria Lewis, um, we often text about films. I'll get a random text and she was watching Lethal Weapon for the first time the other day and it sort of fits right in this period and she wrote, there has never been a worse time for human beings physically than 1986 to 1993, (laughs) which I think is perfectly perfectly apt for our conversation. (laughs) It's exactly that moment where people are like, no, you know, Sylvester Stallone is impossible. He's this impossible human, and so is Schwarzenegger. But no, I don't think people are going to be bored, Joanna. I think that's exactly why you know that's why people keep going back to this movie in this weird sort of cyclical way. It sort of is—it's very canonical, and then it's also you know fits right in and also fits into other decades and eras and stuff. But look, yeah. let's get let's get to the minute at hand. Let's let's dive into let's this. Let's dive into this let's bad boy. So Joanna and I are going to watch this amazing ninety third minute of Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Map is We're going to watch it together. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. A recurring dream.
1: I'm sitting at this big banquet table and all the victims of all the murders I ever worked are sitting at this table and they're staring at me with these black eyeballs because they got eight ball hemorrhages from the head wounds. And there they are, these big balloon people because I found them two weeks after they'd been under the bed. The neighbors reported the smell. And there they are. All of them just sitting there. What do they say? Nothing. No talk? None. Just. They don't have anything to say. See, we just look at each other, they look at me. And that's it. That's the dream. I have one where I'm drowning.
0: (laughs) Oh, the devastation of this sequence being broken into bits. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But it's such a, it's, there's a lot of me, you know, besides the fact that it's sort of uh, slightly clipped, I think we get the essence of uh, Vincent's awesome dream there and and watching Neil react. What a minute.
1: It's such a good minute. I actually feel like my memory of this seven-minute sequence in this diner. Are we going to call it a diner? Because when I rewatched it, it actually really looks like a restaurant. Yeah, it it's, doesn't
0: fit. It's, it's, yeah, it's
1: weird. So let's
0: think, call it a diner. Yeah, it's a, it's an old school. I think yeah, it's one of those weird things how all Americans call even if it's if it's a roadside restaurant, it's a diner in the states. So let's go with diner. Let's go with a diner.
1: Let's call it that. That way we can talk about other Diner movies. Um, I, think, <laughs> um, I think that in my memory of the sequence, this, this, co- this part of the conversation is actually the part that I focused on length the first time around. Like I was focused on them kind of exchanging, you know, their kind of, um, uh, you know, this is, I didn't want a regular life, the sort of part that comes beforehand. I don't know how to do anything else. And I don't really want to. And then the bit that comes immediately after this, which we won't talk about too much, but you know, talking basically about what's going to happen if they ever meet again. And I think I realised in watching this over and over and over now, um, in preparation to come and talk to you, was just how how portentous and important this kind of conversation about these dreams really is to the way that it um, connects to other bigger themes within the entire film and the way it kind of magnifies the the melancholy in the movie that, you know, is running through it from the beginning, but I think starts to sort of explode after they've had this meeting together. I mean, there's so much to talk about, even just external to this particular minute, you know, in do you want to talk about the iconic nature of this scene or is that something you're going to talk to everybody who you talk to about? A minute
0: in the diner about, or I, I think I think we can talk about it many times, Joanna. This is what you. Sure. <laughs> this is as much about me getting to talk about this with you, but I, I think like let, let's start with the first point before we get to the iconography and and sure. uh, and how sure. and how that is. I, I absolutely agree. I love this as a portal into these two actors as performers as much as into characters because it's really oh, the I first do. time that you get. Uh, I want to say like unadulted vision into how these men perceive these men that they're portraying. And so that's what's so beautifully organic about it. The the entire dream sequence that we're sort of talking about here and we, we get to sort of ruminate on the beginning of was completely fabricated by Pacino and De Niro in their rehearsal. This was something that these guys brought to it I, you know they had a feeling um i, I think it was much more pacino that came to it saying you know in this moment i feel like it's right for for us to talk a dream sequence and he sort of add they ad-libbed this sequence and so i love that this is the way that this is the haunted nature of vincent Hanna's character that sort of anchors yeah. all his crazy polarity that he's like bouncing between in the entire film and then we just clip it off so i won't you know uh, won't examine it too much but it's it's this you you get to sort of also see a bit of the agency the weird agency in neil where He's a person who's drowning and he has to wake himself up because God forbid anyone else could wake him up to be relied upon (laughs) to wake him up from drowning. Like even he has to save himself, which is sort of this weird contradiction in itself. So yeah, it's this, I I love it more and more because of how I feel it's so organic. And I I love that even just so beautiful around De Niro's delivery of going, what do they say? Because for him, in a way, it's almost like they'd be a jury. They'd be judging him for his failure. Even that one line, I just feel it just yeah. reeks so much. And he's like, no, they don't talk. They don't need, to. for Vince and Hannah, they don't need to talk. It's enough that they're there looking at him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They're basically a reminder of his incompetence. I mean, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, but my feeling about this film is that it's a film that's best described as an inaction film so like the opposite of an action film Yes. and as I've been listening to your podcast um, I think that that's come through a lot in the conversations you've had with people about how the action sequences kind of fade into the background of the kind of importance of the various relationship dramas but what you get in this sequence is these two people who are actually being forced to stop moving they have to sit still and face the reality of Um, who they are you know in my thesis it was they're struggling with the question of what it means to be a man Um, when and you know it there's no easy resolution to those questions by the time we get to the conclusion of this film and so what you get here is this very strong sense of death i think i don't know if you agree with that but there's like and it's not just oh definitely firstly
0: definitely most definitely yes
1: I mean, it comes up first with this dream, but then, and the conversation that they then finish off this scene with, but it's like, and that's just driving. Then I think right to the sort of end of the movie, um, this idea that it's uh, where they're going is very much fated. You know, there's a fated ending that's kind of, I mean, I, I don't think that we want to read this, his Vincent's dream as kind of a parable so much no. as it's, it being about the kind of mood and the atmosphere it creates more than anything else. But there's this very strong sense that these two are destined to to meet again and that it's not going to end well.
0: Yeah, so it, I, I, I agree. I think there's this weird um, – again, it's another one of these things that these guys uh, have – they've manufactured, which is so – it just it's, – it's, it's like um, – you know they talk about it in writing a lot, where it's like the muse is speaking to them, and I feel like these guys are so dialed into what this movie thematically is trying to get across that it's almost like the muse of the yeah. movie is talking to them. Because for Vincent, for Vincent, he, he, you know, as a professional, his his death, his failure is the death of others, and for Neil, yeah. as a professional criminal, his failure is his own death, and so yeah. it's this great. You know, it's that it's super, super archetypal, and sometimes it would be you could you could imagine it being very um, uh, uh, sort of tacky, almost in in execution. If if you just sort of wrote it down on paper, what these dreams were about, and how they are meant to make the audience feel, or how the actors wanted the audience to feel about their characters, or how, what the director was trying to come across with. But there's just something about the way that it sits in amongst this scene as this moment of pure confession. Like the other bits are, I know about you, you know, sort of feeling each other out. It's like the beginning of a prize fight. You know, they're just sort of dancing around, testing each other. And this is the moment where it's just like, this is everything I've got. This is everything about me. This is my personal philosophy. And there it is. It's just there, it's just there, bearing yeah. each other's souls.
1: Yeah. And, you know, then you've got this kind of extra textual level where you've got Pacino and De Niro clearly like, you know, they're two actors that seem to share a very secret language between themselves in this scene. And, you know, just to go back to that boxing metaphor, they're like two boxers who fought each other before. I mean, they never have acted yes. together. Yes. We all know in a scene in any film until this one. But. You know, their career trajectories have followed basically side by side. They're often talked about in the same breath, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they know each other's moves. And, you know, you do get in this scene, contrary to popular opinion about Pacino being all bluster and, you know, frenzy, I think you get a distillation of both their performance styles perfectly in what they're doing when they face each other face-to-face here.
0: I love that. I, I love... Um that that extra textual layer they're spoken about in the same breath and i love that these two characters know each other's moves and these two guys know each other's moves and i just love the that layering it just packs on top of it so for me when when you get those brief moments where there's a wry smile or a or anything they just like they just yeah. sing in this scene i'm just like oh my god this is you know these guys they're like every they're just like a this echo of like every character they've ever played are sitting across from one another in this just because like yeah. you can't see any of it. I know it's, I know it's not overt. They're definitely not doing any winks. Um, uh, but uh, I think, <laughs> I think Michael Mann knows how powerful it is that these two guys are just sitting here. And I, and I, one thing Johnny, you said before, which I really liked was again, they can't move. You know, so the, the, the being able to sense each other's moves in this scene from a character perspective, um, the inaction, you know, these guys are all about movement, the frenetic pace, the swagger of Vincent Hannah, the, the cold calculating, constantly checking the exits of Neil Macaulay. But the fact that they're like locked in this little box of this diner, um, it, it, it then sort of they, know, they have to know each other's moves in every expression. And I think there's just such an also wonderful parrying that's happening with all these expressions and looks and, you know, glances and, you know, musing, sort of pondering, looking off into one spot. And then I I just love the the pause that Pacino does. And then, you know, De Niro writes the ship, you know, what do they say? (laughs) What do they say? Could have gone on for hours, that scene, but he, you know, kind of keeps the pace. What do they say? So great.
1: But when you first watched um, Heat, were you... I often have wondered whether people were underwhelmed by, the fa- you know, by this scene, by, you know, what will we all really... I can't really remember what I was expecting, you know, after the hype of, oh, you know, the two of them are going to be in this scene together, the first time they've ever been on screen. Um, and I wonder if people felt underwhelmed because, you know, the way that we're kind of our gratification is delayed you know to this just past the middle mark of the film and and then we get to this moment that's just so low-key and so quiet and there's no flash and there's no showiness and um i mean i think it's perfect but i you know i do wonder whether people felt like really let down by it
0: yeah i i don't i don't know i think every person i've spoken to so far, I don't think anyone's ever said that they, if they were disappointed, that it, susta- it was a sustained disappointment. Because maybe it was the way that the film was built up that we were going to get. I think way less about the scene and way more about um, the time. A lot of people were craving longer. these guys to be on screen for a long time. And then when, yeah. they, when it wasn't, it became sort of like, oh, I wish they were on screen for more. But when they see it as the work, they're like, wow, that movie was great. And then they go back and this quiet little diner scene becomes like this seminal moment in cinema. And they're like, Oh, this is the best. Like this is a, this is a a true face off between these two guys. And it's just so it's, it's, it's just a beautiful synthesis of everything that they've got in their performance styles up to this sort of peak of their careers. And it's just, it just works. So yeah, I, I I did it in reverse. You know, I was a young, I was a young sort of teen when I first saw heat and, um, I didn't I I knew these guys. I think I'd seen a couple of their big films um, being a bit of a film nerd at the time, but I I I, I had to retroactively get how important it was. So when yeah. you sort of dive down each of these guys' collective resumes and then see where it comes out, the thing that always stuck with me though, Joanna, exactly what you said is I just was stunned by how perfect this scene was. I've just never not watched yeah. I've never not watched this scene and been in complete awe. And, you know, you and I watch plenty of films and even plenty of films where just a basic conversation happens in a diner or whatever the case may be. And I don't think I've ever sat down for seven minutes and been more riveted and just blown away by two people talking and and sometimes talking about their dreams exactly in this minute than than this movie. And so I think that's a testament to these guys because they're just doing – it's loaded – with and, and, and any interaction you see, or and I'm sure you've heard about these films. Oh, it's you know, the next heat, or oh, it's influenced by heat. I'm just like, stop, just please, just don't say that. Just say, I really like the films of Michael Mann, or say anything, say I like 90s actioners or, or New Hollywood. Just don't say heat because as soon as you say heat, I know that you don't get it, I know that you don't yeah. get what it means because it's almost like you can't replicate. Well, <laughs> You can't replicate two decades of these guys echoing their careers and being spoken about in the same breath. You can't echo it.
1: And films like these don't come around that often. They don't. You know, it's that simple. No. At at every level, even, you know, external to Pacino and De Niro. But, yeah, I mean, let's try to... I know you've been doing, like, a a sort of fantasy recasting, but I can't imagine (laughs) two, two actors today... You know who maybe maybe they've they've had careers that are like maybe ten or fifteen years long or twenty years, let's give it that. Yes. Who've sort of come up side by side, for whom I would feel the same level of excitement. No. Were they to sit down and have a cup of coffee, you know?
0: No way, I completely agree. No, and, and this is my pro- this is my problem, Joanna, and I'll reveal it on the on the show. There, will, there is going to be a bonus episode of One Heat Minute where, you know, some all-stars of the of the show, Garth Franklin from Dark and Stu Coot from Cinephiles, yeah. you know, a few of the key guys. We're going to sit down and some friends of the show are going to come along and do a fantasy recasting. I've had my little template, thanks to Mr. Garth Franklin, to like start filling in our decades because we're going to do it by decade um, because we think that will oh, be yeah. fun, sort of 70s, 80s, you know, um, skip the 90s, head into the 2000s and then, you know, modern era every sort of 10 years, do a few different fantasy casts and i just i am ex- i'm stuck exactly on what you say because i think every other piece of casting you can do based off of who these two guys in the middle are but there's really and yeah i just do not know and i've just thought of one pairing but now it's impossible because one of the actors has passed but i would just think if you were going to do actually two if you were going to do a, a heat ripoff um, or a parody of Heat in maybe another decade and put Simon Pegg and Nick Frost across from one another, like, you know, as the parody <laughs> Pacino and Gennaro, I would just eat that up. I would watch it every day. Like, I can imagine that would be outstanding. Um, but the only other two I'm just thinking of off the top of my head is, like, imagine a Keanu Reeves sort of River Phoenix. I don't know if River Phoenix ever, you know, pa- Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze, you know, coming back from Point Break, doing it, like, 20 years later. But I just can't think of two... People I care about enough to be in that scene, like, especially not in a modern context. I'm like, I have no desire to see any of these people on screen against each other.
1: No, it's just, yeah. I mean, I don't even know how to talk about it because I just can't see it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's like,
1: (laughs) and I mean. I'm you know, I'm fairly, as you know, obsessed with actors. Um <laughs> Look, maybe in look,
0: maybe in thirty years it's an army hammer Timothy Chalamet. Like, you know, like I mean I know the ages are different, but the showdown could still exist. <laughs> it
1: could. But I still don't think it would work. <laughs> no, I don't
0: either. I don't either. <laughs> but we can imagine we can just dream that's a nice little uh, th- but yeah honestly I. it's so tough especially when you know all of what was discussed so far it's so tough to think of who could who could handle this scene
1: no
0: no one <laughs> <laughs> I love that no, no one okay guys uh, that's uh, job's done <laughs> fantasy <laughs> casting is done yeah <laughs> um,
1: all right maybe we should move
0: on. No, that. we can. We can move on. We can definitely move yeah. on. So, um let's talk I mean, we've sort of stumbled into it because we talked about it with the fantasy casting, but um you know, when this moment when this moment happens now, um you know, and and I'm sure you've seen a lot of these heat clones. Do you think what what do you think about how this film is now placed in sort of history, because you, you talk about it in your thesis from a, the, the, the sort of portrayals of masculinity perspective. Funnily enough, I did two in a thesis talking more about yeah. th- that as well, like portrayals of masculinity, but I was focusing on this and the insider sort of displaced...
1: I heard we both had a debt to Susan Jeffords
0: in our work. Yeah, remasculinization, yeah. right? Yeah, Susan Jeffords, yeah, yeah. amazing work, amazing work. But it's yeah, it's, it talks about those cycles. But where, what do you think has made people come back to this movie besides obviously the iconography of these two, you know, amazing actors finally going toe to toe? What what do you think part of it is?
1: Well, I think a very big part of it is just that it's a supremely well made film I mean yeah um, I think when I rewatched it in preparation to talk to you i hadn't watched it for quite a few years, and I think what struck me yet again was there's just not a dull moment in this entire film it's no. long, yes, I think we've established that um, <laughs> there's, there's no, but there's no moment that's not interesting or um, you know, well-paced or whether dialogue ever falls flat. There's no performance that lets down the film, you know. It's just... And and then, I guess, thematically, I think... I think it's because of the characters, and I think it goes back to this idea that actually, at the end of the day, it's a character drama, you know, with some criminal, you know, heist elements kind of put in for good measure. Um, you know, that these are people who they're kind of recognisable American archetypes that we know from, you know, we know from crime films, we know them from westerns, we know them as these kind of loner men and they just, I don't know, they just don't cease to be boring. I mean, I know we're not supposed to be interested in films about men anymore at all, <laughs> um, but, but but you know, we are and I don't know. I'm,
0: and, and I think I'm it's...
1: Sure I know the answer to it. I just know that I think when a film is a great film, it doesn't. You know, it is a part of the cultural moment in which it is birthed. Yes. But you know, this story. This story obviously was percolating for Michael Mann well before 1995.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so you know, we read it in that context. But I don't think when a film is a great movie, it's a great film. It it exists well beyond those boundaries.
0: And it also, I think, like you said, for all the, the drama, and we love people, uh, Michael Mann in this movies loves arguments that happen in a, lo- in a big volatile way, and then he also loves arguments and confrontations that are extremely civil. And I think he twists around your expectations of the arguments that are going to be really civil and the arguments that are going to be really volatile. Like the, my favourite one, yeah. probably in the film, the great argument is the Justine, um, Justine, and, and Vincent when he leaves her um, after the the celebration and party at the nightclub with friends because she doesn't want to ruin anyone's night. Like yeah. that's just amazing. But I think I think you're yeah. right. It's this it's this centerpiece that 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 great premise of what would happen. You know, we're so obsessed and, and we've kind of been in uh, um, like programmed with the cat and mouse. Uh, just that pulpy cat and mouse cop the crook, you know, investigator versus serial killer. You know, take it through all the different genre variables. Like it's all there, um, and there's just something so outstanding about when the villain and the villain and the good guy or gal is sitting sitting across from one another, just having a great old chin wag. Happens in Hannibal, the TV show, Silence of the Lambs. Like yeah. people just eat it up. And in this sense, it's like. We know that there's like a fatalism to what we're doing. Like this is going to end badly. Um, But right now, we're going to grab a cup of coffee and we're just going to share because there's no one who really knows how badly this thing is going to end and how certain that this thing is going to end with death than both of us. And I think that knowing there's just something about that that for me, like in this sequence and with these guys, and it was almost like them knowing. Oh, we were always going to do a movie together. (laughs) We just we just were keeping pretty quiet about it. But the fact that they were knowing it was going to happen and knowing it was coming for this moment, I just go, yeah, that's just that's just perfect every time. It's great. And then they built this amazing drama around this moment.
1: Yeah, and the thing that's different though than what you know um, than having say. Clarice Starling sitting across from Hannibal and Hannibal Lecter and talking to him is that in this scene, there's no sense of menace. I mean, there's something very ordinary. You know, the two of them are quite ordinary in this moment. Um, And I think what, you know, what man gets to there with both of these characters and which permeates it from beginning to end is that they're very human, you know, and that's what interested me when I wrote about the film was that they're not, these kind of hard bodied heroes, you know they're 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 kind of wounded. I mean, yeah, Neil doesn't stop until he's basically felled by a bullet, but you know he knows the, and it's, he's at the end of the road and he, but he doesn't know how to do anything else, and there's you know there is a sadness, perhaps some might argue a patheticness about that, but it's about existing within a sort of social framework where there are no other options for you. There's no other way for you to know how to be, and you know, I actually find that quite sad from both for both of their perspectives. That they, you know, they could they've they've chosen this. Obviously, they've made the choice to live their lives this way, um, but they're you know they're making choices within a kind of world that oh, hasn't really offered them any other way. Well, they see no other way to be. Be themselves,
0: and I think that made no sense. But, no, no, like. it do, no, it does. It's. I, I. think you're talking about. That's where it becomes its most relatable too. It's like because people have this certain approach where they're like, you know, I can't imagine doing. You, you know, you hear about with people with careers, you know, and you know, I've I got a fr- yeah. I got a fr- yeah. got a friend who works with his hands and he's a metal worker and he had a really horrendous back injury and I remember even you know talking to him, he was just like, there was a point prior to his, you know mapping out a rehabilitation plan that he was going to have to change jobs and for this guy like changing his entire life of what he loved doing and you know everything that he built his life around and how his family worked in that in that sense you know changing that was like was almost like death i don't know how to do anything else like i don't and and i don't want to do it and i don't yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, want to do yeah. it. And uh, I think that that's yeah. what's so great about this moment is they've got this relatability. But people who are professionals and have professional and professional obsessives. And I think right now in 2018, there's like, you know, I think our generation and I'm no, I'm talking to you because of how how um, how passionate and how you know ferocious you are with your own work ethic. It's like it's we re- <laughs> we can relate to obsessive behavior when it comes to your passions and when it comes to work and so you see these guys going I don't know how to do anything else and I don't want to do anything else and even I know that it's probably going to lead to my demise in some sense and, yeah. you know and for us it might not be being felled by a bullet as you said but it's like there's something so deeply relatable that you're just completely and wholly drawn in and I think this is you know for all the really cool stuff that are, that is around this minute the 93rd minute that we're talking about um the the cool you know very very archetypal but equally awesome you know you know i will not hesitate not for a second like that stuff there's this deep relatability of like i'm motivated i'm motivated by the fear of failure and i'm motivated by fear of running out of time to do what i want to do like everyone can relate to that yeah yeah
1: should we return to the minute
0: Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get to this yeah. minute. Let's get let's let's uh let's get to this minute. Which uh let's talk more specifically about what would you like to cover specifically? What have we missed, Joanna? What did you want to cover? Uh,
1: well, I really want to talk a bit more about Al Pacino as an actor, and also just about the location of the diner, which I find is quite interesting because um, I mean you've probably I'm sure you've seen Thief. Michael Mann's first film, and yes, and for me, like the most memorable scene from that entire film is this ten-minute diner scene that happens there, and it's just really beautiful. Um, between James Caan and Tuesday
0: World, yep. yeah, great scene.
1: Yeah. And you know, I mean, it's a very, very different scene to this, um, and it goes for like ten minutes. Yes, um, and and it feels quite, it feels really, feels longer, it feels quite expansive, but it's really quite raw. And again, it's these two people with nowhere to run. Um, and the space, the diner becomes this space for them where they can come clean and bear their souls, and they share their fears and their hopes. And um, you know, by the end of that scene, their differences are diminished, and they're they're a lot closer than they were from the beginning. And you know, ends with this wonderful close up on the two of them holding hands. But um, I mean, and
0: that and I that and that, and that diner sequence to talk about the significance of the location is a is a diner that's overlooking like a multi-lane freeway. Like (laughs) the cars are streaming past. So it's like all these, you know, it's this great conversation about, you know, what, what they both want out of life and people are just the highway of all these dreams and all these lives are sort of streaming past them. And it is, I, I, I like to think of that particular scene, that 10 minute sort of wonderful, like essay on a relationship is almost, is almost sort of done and contrasted and, ruminated on and, and, and expanded and twisted and tweaked in like seven scenes in Heat you know it's like yeah. these different interactions yeah, yeah. with all these different people but in, in, in Thief it's so focused it just does it for one couple
1: yeah exactly I mean it's the diner what's interesting about diners um, as they kind of recur in other films and I've, I have written an essay on this so that's I guess why I'm fixated on it, um, it you know it's this very neutral territory And I think it's interesting in Heat too because I think there's a moment, I can't remember if it's before our minute or I think it's before our minute where Pacino's kind of uh, fidgeting a bit in his chair and there's a kind of a reaction shot from De Niro's character, from Neil, where I think he must be thinking that Vincent's going for his gun. And I think I've read like some commentary where people have interpreted it as that and I always think, well, why would he pull his gun out? in the middle of a diner, in front of all of these people, like, you know, this is not like a, it's a safe space, really. It's, you know, it's not like they've had a meeting under a bridge in the dark where no one else can see them. You know, they've gone to a public space where, um, you know, where they, they're basically insulated by the crowds around them who, you know, are very irrelevant in this scene and basically disappear the further the frame tightens around the two of them. But... Um, I lost my train of sports. No, no, um, you're
0: talking about the diner and the and the concept that Vincent would ever pull a gun. Yeah, I've never I've never had an inclination in this scene whatsoever that yeah. Vincent would ever want to pull his gun. There's a sequence in the eight, just in the round in the 89th minute, it might eclipse the eighty eighth as well, where Vincent is approaching the car, and I think in that moment he he assumes that Neil is very good, and I don't think that in any way he thinks Neil is going to pull his gun, but he just can't be 100% sure. So instinctively, he sort of walks up, just nursing, if you like, the possibility. He's nursing his gun like it's nursing the possibility that something is going to go down. And as soon as he sees Neil and realizes that Neil's kind of confused and, confused and sort of the, the fact that they're now face-to-face... Um, Uh, then he then then vincent is like he's wanting to make him comfortable i've always felt he's like hey what do you say i buy you a cup of coffee follow me like (laughs) and it it's sort of like this weird very very gregarious version of himself just in that moment to sort of go hey i'm not i'm you know i'm not going to shoot you no part of this scene ever makes me think that vincent's going to pull his gun never it would be it it would almost be a different character it'd be a different movie it doesn't belong in this movie
1: yeah, I mean, I totally disagree with anybody who's written that. I mean, I just, I think it's just made up in their own minds. But, um, you know, the thing that's interesting about it is this space is a safe space that enables communication. So what, you know, when people sort of sit across from each other, there's something almost slightly confrontational about it, but the entire scene opens immediately as the opportunity for disclosure. And that's kind of the key dynamic there. And, you know, you see that... I think it kind of hits its peak at this minute that we're talking about, because as soon as you start talking about your dreams, you are you know you're, you're touching on something that you don't really understand, you don't really have a full grasp on you're revealing a new level of vulnerability, I think too. Mm,
0: I agree, definitely, and I think you let's let's dive straight into Pacino's performance here. It is such an effortless and calm. And organic performance from him. And I totally agree. You said way back at the beginning of the podcast, so many people sort of malign his performance as being all over the place in comparison to a very still Robert De Niro Neil Macaulay. But I think the I think his performance is just so on point because it's so reliable so reliant on the characters that he's performing to in character. Um, all the crooks, you know, he just seems to turn into like a manic lunatic around criminals, but it's just to keep them completely on their toes and keep them all, off balance so that he can be maintain control. It's very controlled performance, okay. I think.
1: Everything he does, I think, in this film is in service to the script and is in service to the scene and, as you just said, in service to what Vincent needs to give to the person that he's playing off. Um, so I did come across something today that I hadn't heard before. Um, there was a and a that was done with Christopher Nolan. Um, I think it was two years ago on the occasion of the 4k release of the film. Yes. Um, where Pacino was revealing uh, an element of the back of Vincent's backstory that, you know, he built up this backstory that we, you know, didn't necessarily have kind of elaborated um, within the film where, he basically decided that Vincent was somebody who was using cocaine a bit on the side, yes, and that that would explain some of his more you know frenzied and kind of jumpy moves. Had you heard that before?
0: I, I had, I'm and, sure and I learned that at the same Q and A. It was the it, it blew up, and I think this is maybe my Google alerts for Heat and Michael Mann, but it blew <laughs> up blew up uh, uh, alerts at the time saying that they'd had that, and there's even a scene in the film. Um, where you would not remember he, he's, going to see, um, he's going to see Albert Torina and his brother Richard playing by the awesome Tone Loke. Um, and yeah, he's, walking, he's walking into a nightclub and he sees this big sort of albino guy on crutches and he goes up to him and he goes, give me all your money. And he goes, man, you're yeah. going to get smoked for that. In the original cut of the film, he cops cocaine from that guy.
1: Ah, okay. And
0: takes a bump before he goes into that next sequence. And so I think what what man had talked about was that this guy maybe had a drug habit to sort of continue to fuel his like you know, crazy mania of staying up all night. Like just being a guy who just stayed up all night all the time and just could go days and days on it. Yeah. He just he doesn't sleep. Not at all. and and so that was the sort of thing. But the, the concern was that we and I, I think they totally made the right decision was um, that if he was the guy who was a bit of a drug addict, that it would distract from the whole focus of the film. Like it would just overtake. It would be about the drug addicted cop as opposed to this great tense crime story between these sort of two um, two sides of the coin. You know these archetypes. And 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 I and I kind of almost like the 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 way that they've agreed that that decision should stay in the background I've kind of done the same I'm like I don't need Vincent to have ever copped cocaine I like Vincent just being a madman being having like a slight yeah. mania I I like that he you know he fuels himself up and then he crashes when he goes home because he's so charged up in in you know being aggressive and keeping these crooks off of off of their you know off balance um yeah I I've, I've yeah uh, it's it's a great it's a It's a great insight, but I I like that I didn't know it probably more when I didn't know it. Yeah,
1: I think I I agree. I'm sort of sorry that I stumbled across it today because I don't care about Pacino's kind of bigger moments anyway. I mean, I've sort of become a bit of an apologist for him, I think, in recent years. I mean, even some of the work that he's done that has been uh, bigger and brasher and louder. But, um, you know, like what you said, what he does here in this moment when he's recounting this, dream uh, is a reminder for people who maybe have forgotten of what it was about him when, you know, when he came up in the 70s that was so great which is a combination of stillness and physicality this kind of nervous tension that he has in his body that you can almost feel him buzzing off the screen and his, abil- his ability I think to to convey so much story with his enormous eyes and this quote—I've always loved this quote um, from Marsha Lucas when there was all this controversy about whether to cast uh, Pacino in The Godfather because Robert Evans thought he looked like a troll, you know, and he wasn't glamorous <laughs> enough, but, yes. you know, to play Michael Corleone. And Marsha Lucas, um, George Lucas's wife, um, told Coppola, "Cast Pacino because he addresses you with his eyes." And that's the thing when you you closely look at his career. Um, his eyes really kind of tell the story and they continue to do that in this film and sometimes they're still and contained and watchful and observant and then other times they are, like you said, manic and kind of on the verge of something. But, you know, this is the kind of actor he is. He's not, uh, you know, the, there's... He, I think he's developed over the years. I just wanted to draw your attention to an interview that you may or may not have seen with him that was done earlier this year for The Village Voice um, with Bilge Ibiri, because Pacino had a retrospective um, in New York earlier this year and it was like a 36 film or 34 film and the interviewer was basically asking him a lot of questions about the development of his acting style and you know how he used to be more understated and now he's more theatrical and Pacino sort of likened himself to a tenor, you know, an opera singer, and he said sometimes you've got to be allowed to hit those high notes, um, even if they're wrong. And, um, you know, he admitted that a couple of the roles um, he's taken, the needle might have screeched on the record a bit more than was expected. But <laughs> what, what I loved about what I love about reading interviews with him, which I don't think you get from De Niro because he's far more guarded, yes. and, um, and you, you see that if you ever see either of them being interviewed side by side... Um, is that Pacino has a lot of self-awareness and a lot of um, interest in discussing the craft of acting. And the the thing that he said in this interview that I loved, um, and I know this is going off topic a bit, but um, was that, you know, actors should be allowed to fail and to struggle a lot more than they are. Um, You know, that people are obsessed with this idea that things always have to work. Um, I mean, everything works in heat, but, you know, inevitably when you talk about him alongside De Niro, people will do these comparisons and um, I think the conversation around Pacino has gotten to be a lot more about him, you know, hamming it up and, you know, maybe that's what he's doing. I don't know, but maybe he is trying different things and I find that interesting because I think if you do the same thing as an actor for 60 years, you probably stagnate and die.
0: I I completely agree. And his eyes... I think his eyes. Just talking about the, not only this performance, but the, the sort of seminal moment that sort of kicked his whole career off as Michael Colleone. He's he's in a he's in a restaurant, kind of a little old Italian diner sort of scene, if you yeah. will. He's there, and he's across from yeah. Salozzo and he's across from um, the crooked cop um, uh, there, and uh, yeah. McCluskey, god damn it! I love that movie so much. Anyway, so he's sitting from Solotzko and McCluskey, and he's sitting there, and there's the wonderful swelling uh, precursor to him deciding to take the shot. After he comes out of the toilet, he the the sound evaporates from the conversation, and uh, it sounds like the elevated rail outside you know, couple of focuses on it and the sound starts to be getting louder and louder and more and more deafening the eye acting that he does in that moment where he's trying to maintain his cool and not show his cards as well as you are watching his internal torment of like, he knows he's on the precipice. He knows he's at a point of no return. And if he does what he's going to do, his entire life trajectory is going to change. And maybe in whatever that takes to do 15 or 20 seconds, you see the sophistication of a performer who not only knows how to convey something so magnificently just as an actor but how to do it for cinema because there's a huge difference and he's a guy yeah. who's been a, a theatrical performer as well but there's a huge difference in acting for the cinema yeah. because so much of it is relying on your ability to convey emotions just with minor touches and subtlety and just minor nuance and I think in this scene that's what blows me away is the ebb and flow of the emotions that they're delivering with one another. So at the beginning of the scene, Pacino's eyes look a little bit more deadened, a little bit more cagey. But in our minute, and I've just been watching it uh, you know on 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 silent, on mute as we've been talking, in this moment where he's out outlaying the dream, there is such a candor and a friendliness yeah. and a and a and a fraternal bond that he's just sharing and it's just completely unguarded in his and it's everything about it is in the eyes the pace of his he he compliments his voice and his movements and even there's like a flicker of his fringe that just won't go away it's the most perfectly uh, perfectly accident on not slash non-accident fringe of all time and he's just it's almost superman level that's how good it is and it's just it's there and he's just so unguarded and it's so perfect. He just looks and the there's like this intense sharing between them and focus and, and attentiveness to each other's eyes that you're just like, how many actors can even do that? Who can even access this? And I think it's also the great directors that he works with allow him the canvas to not have to do it completely physically and go completely crazy. He can sit at a table and be intense and it sort of feels a little bit more muted than say something like The Devil's Advocate where he's like going over the top all the time instead of just being focused, you know, stuck to a table, stuck to a a pew (laughs) in a church, stuck to a, you know, a side, a ringside seat in a, you know, there's those moments that really sing in that movie as an example and that's one of those ones that the record scratches. I love that analogy. Um, But yeah, but this take, speaking of perfection, this is the 11th take of this scene. Yeah. That we're seeing on the film. So it took 11 times to hit this pinnacle that we're talking about right now. It took 11 goes to hit this exact, you know, organic feeling conversation.
1: Well, I hope that, I'm pretty sure they chose the right one. I mean, sometimes it's not because, you know, take five was terrible, it's that take 11 has got something in it that's, you know, maybe just a little deeper. Oh. I always would love to see I, um, I when I interviewed Luca Guadagnino just to talk about Call Me By Yes. I wrong. knew it was going to happen I, and I, I love it. No.
0: No, no I I'm, just, kid, I'm just kidding. I, Thank I asked you.
1: Him, <laughs> I asked him how many takes did you do of the final um the final scene um when Timothy Chalamet is staring into the fireplace and you know he said well we took we did three um or did he say we did seven and we went with the third. I can't actually remember now why i brought this up, but no, what he told me was that in every take there was something good, but the one that we chose just felt like it was the right take. So it's not, I mean, I'm just saying this to say that doesn't mean that the others are necessarily dreadful.
0: No, it's, it's, but it's about, it's about, I think it's about the, the transition of emotions 'Cause I think that yeah. you're, the scene that you well, by that, the
1: eleventh take would be exhausted, you know? Yeah. So,
0: you would think that. You'd didn't
1: think... they they felt this in the middle of the night too? And he does they do have that they do have a look of tiredness about them, I think the two of them. Um, and you know, when you get tired, when you're tired you become I think you become more vulnerable, you become more open. And that, you know, I completely agree with you about that warmth that's in his eyes there. It's almost like Maybe the only time we see it in the whole course of the film.
0: Yes, there's not another moment where. Actually, there is. There's one moment that maybe he's equally as warm, and it's when he's admitting to Justine. She's like, "Could we make this work?" And he's they're in uh, at that the hospital, hospital emergency room, and yeah. he's like, "No, <laughs> we can't." Basically, he's like, "You, t- as you said, all I am is what I'm going after," and it's that yeah. surrender. You know, tiredness, surrender of the the fact that the relationship is over, surrender to the fact that he's a professional obsessive. There's just this sort of calm that comes with that where he's like, this is as calm and as candid as you get. It's no hostility, even if it's civil. There's none of this kind of quiet hostility. There's just this scene and this moment. Well, ladies and gents, Joanna DiMattea, thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. This has been an unreal conversation and thank you for bravely putting your hand up for one of these seminal minutes. I think a few people have been pretty fearful of tackling it, um, so they haven't oh, asked. Right. But I'm, I'm extremely happy that you came along for the ride for this moment and got to sort of unpack everything that we discussed. Um, thank you again so much. Thank you, Blake.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: You are more than welcome. Guys, the best place you can find Joanna DiMattea is in the Twitter sphere at Joanna Dimitier. Um, That's where you'll find all of her stuff. That's where I find her stuff. That's where I'm following her. You'll see us occasionally chat about things. I think there should be more talk of the remasculinization masculinization of America, um, <laughs> Susan Jeffords, just in general. So if you and I can just promise to do that every, once every six weeks or so, I think that would be perfect. Um, sure. Joe, I'll
1: put it in my diary.
0: <laughs> we should, yeah we'll put it in the diary we'll do a calendar reminder for each other to do that um, guys uh, Joanna writes all over the place um, Senses of Cinema is where you can probably see her most recent stuff Kill Your Darling, She Freelances for the Age if you're in Melbourne um, you'll see her at Stuff, she's recently in uh, Screen Education uh, for one of her other pieces on Call Me By Your Name um, so you can find her all over the place but stick to Twitter because that's how I find her stuff thank you so much again Joanna have I missed any place that these folks can find you
1: um I also write for Acme quite frequently. Ah, awesome. Um, yeah, I haven't written for the Age for a while, but I did have an article on Al Pacino in The Godfather published in the Age which people might find interesting.
0: Ah, there we go. So That's a good one. I might I might quite find a
1: few
0: Might f- see if I can find that link and add it to our one heat minute post um, to, to sure. go there. Look thank you so much again for being a part of one eight minute Joanna. I'm sure if I can wrangle you back, um, we still have, yes. as we're at the 93rd minute, we've still got around 77 minutes to go of this movie. So right. I think uh, we've, 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 we've still got plenty of time for you to come back. So I'd love to have you back. If you'd come back, i like to make people promise on yeah. the show. This is what I do. Yeah,
1: I'd be very happy too.
0: Uh, lovely guys. Thank you so much for listening to one heat minute I uh, would it would not be nearly as fun uh, to do this in a vacuum but as you can see I just keep bringing these amazing people to talk to me around the campfire that is Michael Mann's 1995 masterpiece heat thank you Joanna again for joining me thank you to Mr. Garth Franklin for our web design Mr. Paul Davies for our awesome theme and thank you guys we will catch you again on another episode of one heat minute and another scene from this diner another minute from this diner a few more to go <laughs> just around the corner.